Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's episode of The Serial Dynasty is sponsored in part by Audible. If you're spending your weeks twiddling your thumbs, anxiously awaiting the next episode of Undisclosed or The Serial Dynasty, consider downloading a free audiobook from Audible. As a Serial Dynasty sponsor, Audible is offering for all of my listeners to download one free audiobook. Your free audiobook can be stored and played on any smartphone or tablet. To get your free audiobook, simply go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. And as always, the Serial Dynasty is partially funded by listeners like you through your generous donations. If you're a supporter of the show and you'd like to donate, you can do that in one of two ways. Either go to SerialDynasty.com and click the Donate button, or go to the host site for the podcast, SerialDynasty.Podomatic.com, and click the PayPal Donate button on that page. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Serial Dynasty. You speak of the police as your antagonist, but surely their business is to discover the actual offender, not to fix the crime on some particular person. That would seem to be so, replied Thorndyke, but in practice it is otherwise. When the police have made an arrest, they work for a conviction. If the man is innocent, that is his business not theirs. It is for him to prove it. The system is a pernicious one, especially since the efficiency of a police officer is, in consequence, apt to be estimated by the number of convictions he has secured, and an inducement is thus held out to him to obtain a conviction, if possible. What I've just read to you is a passage out of an old book called The Red Thumb Mark by R. Austin Freeman, and it was written in 1907. This passage was sent to me by listener Sue Conklin. The subject of her email is, It's been happening for years. After the passage, Sue says, I couldn't believe it. So this practice of getting convictions regardless of innocence has been going on, not just in Baltimore, but in Victorian England, and most likely long before that too. Love your podcast. Thanks for fighting to free Adnan, Sue Conklin. When I read this email from Sue, it was like taking a knife to the chest. All of a sudden it's becoming more and more obvious how naive I've been for all of these years in assuming that all of the police are always out to get the right guy. I know that some of this stems from the fact that I've spent most of my adult life living in a relatively small town. The cops that work in my town are the same guys that my wife and I might have dinner with on a Friday night or grab a drink with on a Saturday. But this passage from this old book really made me realize how stupid I've been to think that the cops are always just looking for the right guy. Now I've mentioned before on this show and I want to make clear again that I'm not painting with a broad brush. I just don't do that with anyone. This is not an attack on police officers. This is not a broad characterization of all police officers. 
but at the same time to assume that all police officers stand on the same high moral ground is just naive. Michael Wood, the retired Baltimore police officer that I did the email interview with two weeks ago, really brings home the idea of where the problem lies. And it's in the system, especially in a large big city department. If you haven't done so already, I'd recommend to any of you to download an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience. Michael Wood gives about a a two-and-a-half-hour interview on Joe's show, and it's just fascinating to listen to. In the interview, Mike speaks in depth about a lot of the things that he briefly spoke about in the email he sent to me. As a detective in a busy city, you live and die by the clearance rates. And that's not something that's new. It's not something that's specific to Baltimore. After reading that passage, it occurs to me that it's always been this way. Over a century ago, authors were writing about this exact same thing. I read that email and suddenly I felt very foolish. Foolish that I ever believed that it's not possible that police could be as corrupt as they've proven to be in the case of the murder of Heyman Lee and the arrest of Adnan Syed. This past Monday, the Undisclosed team released Episode 7, The Arrest. And I'll get into my complete analysis of the episode, but in a nutshell, I can sum it up in two words. Well, shit. Leave it to Rabia, Susan, and Colin to stay one step ahead of myself and most of us in this investigation. In my last episode, I said that I don't necessarily believe that this was some grand conspiracy by the police department. But after listening to the things that have now been uncovered, it couldn't be more evident that the corruption just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. There wasn't a whole lot of entirely new information uh, to me in the first segment of the episode where they discussed the couple of days leading up to Adnan's arrest. But there was one major glaring detail that really got my attention. As a matter of fact, it stopped me in my tracks. I was listening to the episode while working out in my wood shop, and I just stopped and just stood there dumbfounded for several minutes, rewound it, listened to it again. That one piece of information that stopped me in my tracks was finding out that Jen Pusateri's lawyer was Detective Ritz's neighbor. One thing that I've never really spoken publicly about because it's just, I guess, an opinion or an assumption that could certainly still be true or false. But in trying to contact Jen Pusateri, I've spent a lot of time, I guess we'll say researching her, trying to track her down, trying to get an idea of where she's been and what she's been doing over the last 16 years. And one thing that always stuck out to me, that again is just an assumption, was that for a number of reasons, I've always thought, how did she get that lawyer so fast? Her family does not appear to be a family with the resources to have a lawyer in their back pocket like that, where less than 24 hours after her initial interview, she's got a lawyer marching into the police station with her who has her back. And again, this is nothing that is provable And honestly, I'm a little ashamed to admit that I've had this assumption. But it's just something that's always stuck with me, that's always struck me as really odd. Certainly, if Jennifer had been arrested, her family would scrape together everything they have to obtain a lawyer for her. However, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case from some of her subsequent arrests. But obtaining a lawyer just to go into the police station, that's not cheap. And there would have to be a pretty important reason to do that. To find out now that that lawyer was actually Detective Ritz's neighbor starts to fill in some of the pieces of the puzzle for me. That's the most glaring fact from that episode for me that really starts to lean towards this conspiracy is deeper and darker and worse than I ever imagined it was. Now, to be clear, I've never doubted the fact that the police targeted Adnan. 
It's painfully obvious that he was their one and only suspect long before they disclosed the fact that he was. However, my assumption, or I guess I'd say my hope, has been that there was at least a point in time where they really thought that he did it, and then later they just fell into this situation with Jay and they ran with it. These last few weeks have been gut-wrenching. On this show, we've heard from Anand's friend Omar. Last week on this show, Krista gave an amazing interview that really brought Anand and Hay to life and really made us realize the real effect that this murder had on these teenagers. In Episode 7 of Undisclosed, we heard from Anand's mother and his brothers. It's just painful. As a grown man, the tough guy, the fireman, I found myself struggling to choke back tears. Put yourself in the position of Adnan's family, of his mother, his father, his brothers. Imagine your child, your brother, your best friend being hauled away to jail and charged and convicted of murder. It's devastating on so many levels. And then after that, to hear about the ways that Adnan was treated when he was arrested. I don't care if a person is guilty. It's inhumane for him to be treated the way that he was. Laughed at threatened with sexual assault in prison, six-hour-long interrogation with no food, not allowing his parents to come in and see him, not allowing his lawyer to come in and see him, and the worst offense of all of them, changing Anand's birthday so that they can present him with papers charging him with capital murder, sliding a paper in front of him that says he's to be charged with the death penalty. I know why they did it. They obviously did it to intimidate Anand. Jim Trainum spoke about tactics like this as ways that police officers get false confessions. If you convince a person that they're going to face the death penalty if they don't confess, if they don't play ball and take a plea agreement, that's when people confess to crimes that they didn't commit. Ritz and McGillivary weren't stupid. They knew what they were doing. And in a way, I'm glad they did it. Now, like I said, just in a way because the negative effect of them changing that birth date and thusly being able to call this a capital crime punishable by the death penalty, that's what caused Adnan, along with a heaping pile of bigotry towards Muslims, to not get bail. And as Colin Miller mentioned in Undisclosed, people who are awarded bail are far more likely to be acquitted at trial. So I don't mean to discount how horrible it was that they did this. But when I say, in a way, I'm glad that they did, is because it creates more fuel to the fire, proving that Adnan is innocent of this crime. He was a 17-year-old boy who was interrogated for six hours. The detectives lied to him about evidence that they didn't have. They told him that Jay had already confessed. They told him that if he didn't admit that he did this, he was going to face the death penalty. The majority of grown men in this situation buckle. They cave, they confess. Some confessed that committed the crime, some confessed that didn't. But this young man stood his ground and maintained his innocence. And what that tells me is, he knew he was innocent. He was convinced that he would never be convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. He couldn't confess because he didn't know what the hell happened. In six hours of interrogation, the police had two or three sentences of notes that didn't say much of anything. There was nothing incriminating about his interrogation. There wasn't one single thing that Adnan said in that interrogation that was used in trial. As I discussed all the way back in episode 2, it's really not that difficult to manipulate the minds of people. It's quite simple, actually. 
It's not a sign of weakness or ignorance. It's just that if you understand how the human mind works and how human behavior works, it's a fairly simple process to get someone to say the thing that you want them to say or do what you want them to do. Think back to Serial when Deidre Enright was interviewing with Sarah. Remember the part where she spoke about innocent people. She said that innocent people are often of little or no help in the investigation because they don't know anything, because they weren't there, and they didn't do it. These horrible tactics that the police used on the day of Adnan's arrest had devastating effects. But for those of us looking back on that case now 16 years later, they're just more proof that Adnan Syed did not do this. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. For the remainder of the show, I want to go through a few listener emails, and then I'll close things out by walking through what I believe to be the timeline in the police investigation for the last few days leading up to the arrest of Adnan. My first email is from Jeff from Australia. You'll see from the email that Jeff and I have emailed back and forth on a number of occasions before. Jeff says, hey Bob, parentheses, insert more, love the show, compliments, etc. Regarding Serial Dynasty Episode 11. Couldn't agree more with your final summary about Jen and Jay. Spot on. My previous email, titled, Is He Really Innocent?, from July 7th, also pointed that out. Why would anyone, even a pathological liar like Jay, deliberately incriminate himself with a very serious felony just to pin something on Adnan, someone who was a friend? It doesn't really make sense. There is no obvious utility for Jay in it. And what about Jen? She wasn't a drug dealer with a shady past to hide, so why would she back up a police fabrication? I do disagree on one point, though. The issue with Stephanie. I'm sorry, I just don't buy this, quote, we all grieve in our own way, and her way of coping is not talking about it. Nah, from your questioning of Krista, it appears you have similar reservations, too. She knows something and doesn't want to be interviewed in case it comes out. Parentheses, insert more, keep up the good work, encouragements, etc., Cheers, Jeff, from Central Coast, Australia. To hit on a few of these points, as far as Jay and Jen are concerned, I agree with Jeff. If the purpose behind Jay and Jen's testimony was simply to get Adnan convicted, there were certainly ways of doing that without incriminating themselves in the ways that they did. If Jay had nothing to do with this, and he was simply Ritz and McGillivary's puppet, he could have just as easily made up another bullshit story that didn't involve him helping bury a body and moving cars. 
Now, I'll give you the fact that in his case, it certainly makes the state's case stronger by him actually being there side by side with Adnan during that process. So rather than corroborating Jay's story with the cell phone records, the police were corroborating the cell phone records with Jay. So there's some utility there if that's the case. But again, there's Jen. Jen didn't play much of a role in this. She didn't have a charge on her file that she needed to get rid of. And her testifying that she helped Jay dispose of shovels and clothes didn't do anything to strengthen the state's case. If anything, it just made Jay look more guilty, not Adnan. And I have some other points about Jen that I'll get into at the closing of the show. But moving on to your point about Stephanie. And I've actually already emailed Jeff back about this because it was something that I wasn't going to broadcast on the podcast. But I've decided given the amount of emails I get on the topic, it'll be worth addressing. I personally, in my opinion, don't believe that Stephanie really knows anything. I believe that Stephanie is another victim of Jay. And there are several in this case. I don't think that there's anybody out there that believes that Stephanie was part of this murder. I don't think anyone thinks that Stephanie killed Hay. I don't think anyone thinks that Stephanie helped bury a body. Those ideas just really aren't even on the table. So what people are speculating about is that Stephanie does know what happened, and she's gone into some sort of hiding not speaking about it. But think about that for a second. How would Stephanie know what happened? There's only one way, and that would be for Jay to tell her. So here's the ugly truth about what I believe. To believe that Stephanie really knows what happens means you have to also believe that Jay would confess to her that he, or someone else he knew, murdered her friend. And if you believe that Adnan is innocent, like most of us do, he would also have to tell her that he's framing one of her very close friends for the murder. I don't believe that Jay would do that. I believe that Jay would tell her the same story that he told everyone else. But there's just no way he told her the truth about what really happened. So I think the only thing that Stephanie knows is what Jay told her. So why isn't Stephanie speaking out? None of us can really know for sure, but I have a theory. Stephanie is a very intelligent girl. She was in the magnet program. She was an honor student. By all accounts, she was very sharp. Being as smart as she is, I think that she just saw through Jay's bullshit. I think Jay told her the same story he told the police. But I think Stephanie doesn't believe it. There were too many instances of things happening that we've now heard about that would let her know that none of this was true. The fact that when she's trying to interview with the private investigator, Jay and Phil rush over to try to interrupt her. The fact that after that interview, they convince her to insert a little detail in her story that wasn't there before. Then later that story drops out of her narrative, and the police never bring it up again. I think Jay certainly pulled her aside and said, Hey, you need to tell him I was at the school. Or you need to tell him this, or you need to tell him that. But I'm sure he told her those things in the context of, They're going to try to pin this on me. You need to say this for fill-in-the-blank BS reason that Jay would give. Protect his dear old grandma, maybe. Who knows? I think this entire experience was a devastating experience for Stephanie. She was not only grieving the loss of her friend and dealing with the trauma of having another fellow student murdered and having her boyfriend and one of her best friends stuck right in the middle of the investigation. It was traumatizing. I think she loved her boyfriend and she wanted to believe what he was saying, but she knew better. And I think it's a part of her life that now she's just trying to forget and put behind her. If I really thought Stephanie was the key and Stephanie had the truth, I would certainly go to the ends of the earth to try to find her and try to get those answers, to give some justice to Hay and her family, 
and to get Adnan out of that cell. But I just don't think she knows the truth. Her only source of information was a pathological liar, as Jeff said in the email. There's no way he told her the truth. She doesn't know anything. She only knows more of Jay's bullshit. Thank you, Jeff, for that email and all the other emails back and forth before. Uh, I like Jeff. He's always he's always got intelligent things to say, and we're able to have respectful conversations back and forth when we agree and when we disagree. So take care, Jeff. Look forward to hearing from you again. All right, my next email comes from Joshua Windham. I want to take a minute to read Josh's email because, as I've mentioned before, I don't get hardly any, probably less than 1% of the emails that I get in from people that believe that Adnan is guilty. And for any of you listening that do believe that Adnan's guilty, you're more than welcome to send your emails in, and if they're relevant to the episode, I'll certainly read them. The problem is that most of the emails that I get from anybody that believes he's guilty are just rude, disrespectful, trollish emails from people that are stating a bunch of false facts and name-calling and things of that nature. So Josh sent me this email, and the subject line is Best Buy Adnan's Guilt Theory. And I want to read it and address these topics for Josh, because Josh sent a very nice, very respectful email letting me know what his theory was on the case. And I can respect that, so we're going to go through this email for Josh. Josh says, Hi, Bob. I spent some time following the podcast with a friend, and he recalls that you don't get many people theorizing about Adnan's guilt. We really just want to know the truth like everyone else. But this is just another alternative look at the possibility of Adnan and Jay planning the crime. So here's the scenario. Adnan and Jay planned this well in advance together to occur between the end of school and track practice. Adnan was to tell Hay his car was in the shop, mentioned in episode 2 of Serial, so he could get a ride to Best Buy after school. Meanwhile, they planned for Jay to be on the standby with Adnan's car at or near Best Buy. Adnan kills Hay before getting out of the car and Jay pulls up to help Adnan move Hay to Adnan's car trunk. Then Jay brings Adnan to track practice in Adnan's car with Hay in the trunk. This was planned in advance. Jay already knows the spot in Lincoln Park to hide Hay's body, face down, before coming back to bury her with Adnan later. Adnan goes to track, providing his alibi, then gets picked up by Jay. They go together to Best Buy to pick up Hay's car and leave it on a street. Adnan then drops Jay off home, or somewhere else. Adnan goes to the mosque, his second alibi, then picks up Jay, and they wait till late evening to actually bury Hay. The lividity would have settled in at this time. In conclusion, the police did break Jay down on the pre-interviews. He was an accomplice, but since he didn't do the actual act, they make him a deal and change the story to make Jay less involved. As a close friend, Jen becomes an alibi for Jay. Other relevant questions. Number one, was Adnan's new cell phone his first phone ever, or was it just a new phone? Is it suspicious that he got the phone a few days before her disappearance? 2. Was there ever confirmation that Stephanie actually received a gift, other than her word? 3. Was Adnan's car tested for DNA evidence, especially in the trunk? Number 4. Were Hayes' car keys ever found? Number 5. Where did Becky actually get the detail about Adnan's car being in the shop? Episode 2 of Serial. Thanks for reading. Would be curious to hear your thoughts. Sincerely, Josh. Thanks, Josh, for the well-written email. And I'll say as far as your scenario is concerned, it's not impossible based on the facts that we know, but we do have to ignore a lot of things in order to believe it. Yes, there are witnesses that stated that they heard Adnan ask Hay for a ride. But there are also witnesses that said that Hay said something came up and she turned him down for that ride. Then you have Asia's statement that Adnan was in the library till at least 2.40. But I'll concede that that could possibly still fit into your timeline if right at 2.40 he ran out of the library, found Hay, got into her car, and left with her. 
But depending on which witnesses you want to believe, it seems that a very likely scenario is that Hay left the school by 2.30. But again, I'll concede that there are several other witness statements, and we don't have a certain time of exactly when Hay left the school. So maybe she didn't leave until 2.45 or 3 o'clock. But there's still a glaring fact that seems to get overlooked by a lot of people. This large school with all these students in this close-knit group of magnet students that are all on record saying that they all seem to hang out together after school. They're so much involved in each other's lives that these statements about it not asking for a ride, the other events of the day, they've all picked up on little details and noticed all these little things that have happened. Yet not one single witness. Not Becky, not Debbie, not Aisha, not Inez Butler. No one. No one saw Adnan get into Hayes' car that day. Does that mean that it absolutely didn't happen? No, we can't say that it absolutely didn't happen, but it certainly seems unlikely that all these people that remember all these details from that day after school, but no one remembers her actually giving Adnan a ride. But the scenario you presented is still physically possible. The timing could work if Adnan managed to get into Hayes' car and get that ride to Best Buy. It is possible that he could have ridden to Best Buy strangled her, got into Jay's car just the way that you said he did, and went right back to track practice. But practically speaking, do you really believe that, Josh? Do you really believe that a 17-year-old kid, an honor student, with a bright and shining future in front of him, who has a new girlfriend that everyone describes as a loving, caring person, premeditatively rides to Best Buy, strangled this girl that he's loved for so long, stuck her in the trunk of a car, flew back to track practice, and five minutes later is on the track, calm as can be, discussing prayers at the mosque with his track coach, who didn't notice anything out of the ordinary with him. People can debate all day long about whether someone is capable of that type of emotion or not, and it's just speculation. But what I just described and what you described in the scenario is an absolute psychotic sociopath with no emotion whatsoever. And there is absolutely no indication whatsoever from anyone that Adnan was some kind of sociopath. But the most obvious thing that I see about your scenario that makes it entirely implausible to me is if it went down this way, then why didn't Jay say that it went down this way? I mean, think about it for a second. Jay told the police that Adnan did this. Jay confessed to knowing about it beforehand. Jay confessed to helping bury the body. Jay confessed to destroying evidence and hiding evidence afterwards. Why fabricate all of these ridiculous stories that are not possible if the utility of all of them is the exact same result as telling the story that you just described? If that's what happened, I personally believe then Jay would have said that's what happened once he decided to be the snitch. They would have found Hayes' DNA in the trunk of Adnan's car, which, by the way, to answer your question, no, they did not find any DNA, any hair, anything of Hayes in the trunk of Adnan's car. His car was searched and processed. And to answer your other question regarding Adnan's phone, this was his very first phone that he got the day before Hayes' murder took place. And the implication there is possibly that Adnan got the phone in order to commit this murder and I believe in one of Jay's statements, he mentioned that Adnan called him from his phone and planned the murder. But if you look at the phone records, Adnan only made one very short call to Jay for a couple of seconds on the 12th, the day that Jay says that they were planning the murder. That is not physically possible for that conversation to have taken place in the amount of time that he was on the phone to Jay. And if you look at the phone records, if the theory is that Adnan got this phone for the sole purpose of murdering his ex-girlfriend, wouldn't Jay be the first number he calls from that phone? 
but when you look at the records, he wasn't. He called lots of his friends to let him know that he had the phone and to give them the new number, and Jay was way down that list, and for just a few seconds. You asked if we have confirmation that Stephanie actually received a birthday gift. Uh, no, as far as I know, we don't. All we have is the fact that Jay said that he gave her a gift, and Stephanie also said that he did give her a gift. But as far as I know, that's the only evidence we have to go by on that. You asked if Hayes' car keys were ever found. No, they were not. You asked where Becky actually got the detail about Adnan's car being in the shop. I'm not sure. I believe that she said that that's what she had overheard, but I have no idea where that detail came from. So that's the best response I have for you, Josh. I don't know if it swayed your opinion one way or the other. But again, I want to thank you for sending the email in and being respectful and more than welcome to email again and let me know what you thought of my responses and maybe we can discuss it again further. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LuckyLandSlots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, now I want to wrap the show up with sort of summarizing the information uncovered by Undisclosed and walking us through in kind of a clear linear way the timeline of the police investigation in the few days leading up to the arrest of Adnan. In the last few Undisclosed episodes... There's been a lot of talk about this Anihi group and that cultural consultant memo that was written by them. It turns out from the information presented by Undisclosed that that group was initially contacted by Hayes' family. It's something that I hadn't put a whole lot of thought into prior to really today when I was organizing for putting this episode together. But as I'm looking at all these details and looking at all this evidence and how this investigation went, we've asked ourselves so many times why why did the police do this? We know that they targeted Adnan, but why? What I'm wondering at this point, is it possible that the why could be because Hayes' family believed that Adnan was the one who committed this crime? Now, who knows what led them to believe that? We know that there were some cultural differences between Adnan's family and Hayes' family. There was a lot of turmoil because of that. It's not anything I can put my finger on and say we know for sure, but I'll at least tell you that I'm considering the fact that the driving force behind this at the very beginning could have been from Hay's family. And not that Hay's family had it out for Anon, or that they wanted to lock up the poor Muslim kid, but they were a family that was grieving the loss of their daughter. They wanted to find out who did it. As I'm sure you can imagine, it's very easy to get completely out of sorts at that point, and at some point her family contacts this Anihi group. I believe Undisclosed said that it was an uncle, so it may not even have been Hayes' immediate family. It could have been other members of her distant family that got this ball rolling. So the Nihi group is contacted. They're talking to other students. They're talking to Don. They're creating this memo. I'm convinced that the tower dumps took place long before the police are disclosing that they were looking into the cell phone evidence. The police were working from day one to convict Anon. 
The official report says that February 27th was the first time that they spoke with Jay, but this is the real timeline in those last few days. The police spoke with Jay the first time somewhere around February 20th, 21st, or 22nd, or possibly even a week before that. You remember an undisclosed, we have the statement from Neighbor Boy that says about a week after Hayes' body was found, he saw Jay sitting in the back of a cop car talking to the police. Well, if we're looking at one week as seven days, and he was precise, we'd be somewhere around February 16th when that would have occurred. So then we have Sis's statement, the manager at the porn store, that says either the 20th, 21st, or 22nd that Jay missed work because he was speaking to the police. Now, it's possible Neighbor Boy was a little bit off, and one week was more like a week and a half or two weeks, but I don't think so. I think these are two different accounts. I think that somewhere around the 16th of the month, Neighbor Boy saw Jay in the back of a police car talking to the cops. I think it was a week later when Jay missed work to talk to the police. And the reason I say that is because the statement from Sis said that Jay missed work that day to report to the police department for questioning regarding the Heyman Lee case. Well, these are two very different accounts. Neighbor Boy's account is an eyewitness of seeing Jay in the back of a squad car, whereas Sis's account was... Late at night, Jay being gone because he was at the police station. So I believe that first around the 15th, 16th, 17th, somewhere around there, Jay is in the back of that squad car talking to the police. Then a week later, I think the police asked Jay to come downtown into the police department, and they questioned him there. Remember in Jay's intercept interview, he spoke about the fact that he got to the point where he was tired of talking to the police, and he was referring to time before the police spoke with Jen. So we've already got, before the police speak with Jen, two instances where it seems pretty clear that Jay was already speaking to the police. Now, Sis's statement seemed to indicate that Jay missed the entire night of work when he went downtown to talk to the police department, not that he just was gone for a short time. So I'm wondering if that may be the day where the 12-hour rumors come from that were discussed on Episode 7 of Undisclosed. Then we jump ahead to February 26, two days before Adnan is arrested. Around 7 p.m., the police department speaks with Adnan. It was a short interview, about 30 minutes. After that, they went to Jen's house. They speak with Jen. Kathy is there. They ask Jen to go downtown to the station for an interview. Jen tells them that she can't do it. She has to go leave to see her boyfriend, that she'll come down later. Now, at trial, both Jen and Kathy testify to the fact that the place they went was to go see Jay. So Jen avoids talking to the police so she can go see Jay. She says she's going to see him at work, but we know from his work record he wasn't at work that night. He was supposed to be, but that's one of the days that Sis, the manager at the porn store, says Jay missed work because he was speaking to the police. Now, as far as the police speaking with Jen at her house that day, there's the conflict there that was brought up in the Undisclosed episode where Detective McGillivary at the trial testifies that he had no idea this was Jen's residence. He was only following the phone records. That was the address that came up. He didn't know who those calls were actually going to. However, both Jen and Kathy testified that when McGillivary came up, he asked if she was Jen Pusateri. He identified her by name, said that that's who he was looking for, and he'd like to speak with her down at the police station. Now, someone's lying, and my belief is that it is Detective McGillivary. That's a detail that would seem insignificant to Jen or Kathy, as far as what he said when he approached them. That means nothing to them. But McGillivary knows what he's already covered up. He knows what he's hiding, and he knows that this has to be an accidental run-in with Jen in order for his story and his official report to line up. Now, just to reiterate what was already pointed out and undisclosed, 
Kathy testifies, McGillivary says, quote, does Jennifer live here? If he was just following the phone records, he wouldn't know she was there. He wouldn't know she was the one that he was looking for. The only one that it could have told him would have been Jay. Again, more evidence that they've been speaking with Jay about this long before they said they were. So the same night after Jen goes and speaks with Jay, she then goes down to the police station. It was a very brief interview. There's not a lot to it. Jen testified at trial that she had told McGillivary that Jay had told her to tell the police department to go down and see him. Now again, according to the porn store manager, Sis, Jay missed work that night because he told her he was talking to the police. Now, the only thing interesting in that short interview with Jen is the fact that McGillivary says that Jen told him that Hay was strangled. And as mentioned on Undisclosed, that information was not publicly available at that point. No one knew that she was strangled. McGillivary also testified, and we heard his voice on Undisclosed last week, that Jen had told him that she had heard that from her friend Nicole. Now this is a point where you really want to tune in and pay attention for a moment. In the recording back in the 28 Days episode of Undisclosed, Jennifer tells the story of her being at a bar, seeing the news story on TV about Hay going missing on February 4th. She had a couple of slips of the tongue during that interview in recalling those events. You'll remember the one where she said, look, they're talking about Hay's body missing. Now that could have just been a slip of the tongue, a Freudian slip. But if we're still trying to determine whether or not Jen knew anything about this crime or if she's a total fabrication to help with the case, that slip-up of saying body could have been a Freudian slip. It could have been just a misspeak. It could have been the fact that she was telling the story after it had already been learned that Hay was dead and she now knows that Hay's dead and therefore the word body was in her head. Or it could be nothing at all. But the important part to me is the fact that she knew that Hay was strangled. She says that her friend Nicole told her that Hay had been strangled because her mother found the body at the park. Now, in Episode 7 of Undisclosed, Susan Simpson uncovered the fact that the body that Nicole's mother had found was actually the body of Wanda Turner, who had been found in the park the previous January in 1998, a year earlier. And it's kind of a crazy thing to try to wrap your brain around why she would say this or... Is she really that dumb that she's confusing the two? And could it possibly be that she just knows nothing about this crime whatsoever? And that's why she was confusing all these details, because she really doesn't know what's going on. But I spent some time today researching this Wanda Turner body that was found in Leakin Park. And by my conclusion, there's no way that Jen was confusing Nicole's mom finding Wanda Turner's body strangled and Heyman Lee's body being found strangled. And the reason for that is simple. Wanda Turner wasn't strangled. Her cause of death was never officially released from what I could find, and I've searched and searched and searched. There's nowhere where it ever says that her cause of death was discovered or that anyone was ever arrested in the case. Susan had mentioned that maybe it's possible that even though the official cause of death wasn't released, that Nicole's mother would have known the cause of death because she's the one that found the body and she was involved in the case. But there's no way that anyone looking at that body could have determined that she was dead via strangulation. Her body was found completely burned. The reports that I found all say that her burned up body was discovered in the park and the police were sending the body away for an autopsy to attempt to discover what the cause of death was. So I don't think that there's any way that Nicole's mom told her that she found a body that had been strangled in the park and Jen confused that or input that story into her own story about Hay. If she told her daughter about the body she found in the park, I would have to believe that she would describe that body as a completely charred, burned-up body in the park. So the only conclusion that I can draw from this is that Jen knew 
Hay had been strangled. And the only way that she could have known that Hay had been strangled is if Jay told her that Hay had been strangled. Or if she had actually been there herself, which, honestly, I don't believe that's the case, just in my personal opinion and my theories on this case. I don't think Jen was involved with the actual murder, but I believe Jay had to have told her that Heyman Lee was strangled. I don't see any other way that she could have known that. I think that the story about hearing about it being strangled from Nicole was her trying to cover her own ass after she slipped up and mentioned that Hay had been strangled. And when the cops asked her how she knew that, that was the first story she could come up with. That's my theory, my opinion. So supposedly, according to the police record, after that interview with Jen, the police do nothing and all is quiet until the next day. However, like I mentioned before, we know that Jay actually missed work that night. He told Sis that he missed work because he was speaking to the police. Now, that could very likely be true, and I honestly think that's probably the most logical explanation, but it's not the only explanation for a couple of reasons. I mentioned earlier in the episode that I thought Stephanie was a victim of Jay. See, that's the problem with this case. Most of these people that we are getting information from and getting statements from got their information from Jay, and Jay's full of shit. So as far as this account from Sis, the manager at the porn store, it could mean a number of things. First of all, we don't know Sis. All we know is that she's the manager of this porn store slash peep show place there. Sis could be a great person. She could be a compulsive liar. We don't know. Sis could be covering for Jay in some way, but I don't see any utility in that. But let's say most likely benefit of the doubt, Sis is telling the private investigator exactly what Jay told her. But then that doesn't necessarily make that true either. Because as we all know, Jay lies. So Jay may very well have spent that evening, that night, talking to the police. But another possibility is he spent that night talking to Jen. Maybe after Jen's interview, she calls Jay and says, we're in deep trouble, you need to get over here, we need to come up with a plan. I don't think that it's an unreasonable theory to speculate that that was what that night was spent doing, coming up with a plan, Obviously, at some point, Jen's mother is involved because she goes to the lawyer's office with the next day. So that's a possibility of what was going on on the night of the 26th. The next day, the 27th, Jen's attorney calls the police department, says Jen wants to make a statement. Ritz and McGillivary drive out to the lawyer's house, which, as was mentioned in Undisclosed, happened to be Detective Ritz's neighbor. Personally, I think between that interview with Jen on the 26th, in this meeting with the attorney on the 27th, there was communication between Jen, the detectives, this attorney. There had to be. I just don't see any way around that. Maybe it's a coincidence that Jen decides after telling the police she doesn't really know anything, leaving and going home, and they let her leave, maybe she just decided, I want to go confess. Or maybe she decided, I want to go make up a story or whatever the reason was she had to go back there and randomly pick the attorney that happens to live right next door to the detective that had just been interviewing her. I think more likely than that, Ritz and McGillivary contacted her again. They spoke with Jay. They spoke with the attorney. I don't know how that circle would have worked, but somehow the police, along with Jen and along with Jay, started to develop their plan at this point. So they meet at the lawyer's office. They talk for a couple of hours. Then they travel down to the police department and record a statement. Her interview ends at 5.10 p.m. 
It was during that interview where she gave the story that you heard on Serial in her recorded interview that she had got the call from Jay to go pick him up. She showed up to pick him up. They got out of the car. Jay and Adnan both look normal. As soon as Jay gets in the car, he tells her Adnan killed Hay and asks her to go retrieve the shovels and to put him in a dumpster somewhere. Personally, at this point, I'm still of the same belief that I was way back in episode two. I theorized that I thought what was happening here was Jay had already killed and buried Hay, was riding around with Adnan, didn't let Adnan know what happened. After he dropped him off, he gets in the car with Jennifer and has to go back and get the shovels because he couldn't tell Adnan what he had just done. Now, of course, we know that whole story couldn't have happened because there's no way at 7 or 8 o'clock at night or whatever time that was that they were disposing of shovels that they had buried the body with since the body could not have been buried yet at that point. And, of course, there's still the question of whether there were any shovels whatsoever. So in any case, after this interview, about six hours pass. At somewhere shortly after 11 o'clock, the police pick Jay up at the porn store. At a short 20 minutes of interrogation where Jay breaks down, says he comes clean, the taped interview started at 12.30 a.m. on the 28th. During this interview is when Jay gives his first version of events that involve a non-murdering Hay, tells the police he knows where the car is and he can take him to it. The interview concludes at 2.21 a.m. Now, a strange little fact in there that I can't seem to wrap my brain around is that in Undisclosed, it was mentioned that Stephanie gave a statement that she called Adnan at 1.30 a.m. and told him that Jay had been picked up by the police. We know from my interview with Krista last week that Adnan was at Krista's house until somewhere around 1 a.m., and I believe it was on his way home when he got the call from Stephanie. This is what I find odd. Adnan dropped Jay off at work that day, not Stephanie. Jay didn't have a cell phone. The police come to the porn store, they pick Jay up, they put him in the back of their car, and they take him downtown. He's being interviewed without the tapes on somewhere between 11.30 to around 12. So there's about a half an hour gap before they turn the tapes on at 12.30. My question is, why is Stephanie calling Anand to tell him that Jay got picked up at 1.30 in the morning? How did Stephanie know that he'd been picked up? Jay couldn't have called her. Maybe the police gave Jay a phone call at some point. Maybe he told them he had to make a call because he was planning to be somewhere. But that seems unlikely since he was scheduled to be nowhere but the porn store all night long. But even if that was true, the only time he could have made that call would have been right when he got to the police department at 11 o'clock or between these two interviews between 12 and 12.30. He certainly didn't call her at 1 o'clock in the morning or 1.30 in the morning because that was right in the middle of his taped interview. So I don't know what this means, but it's something that I just have a very fishy feeling about. Why wait an hour and a half before she calls Adnan in the middle of the night to tell him? And the fact that Jay calls her seems very unlikely given the situation, so if that's the case, who did tell Stephanie that Jay was being interviewed? I guess maybe she stopped at the porn store to see him and he wasn't there and they told him. I don't know, this could be absolutely nothing, and likely it is, but it's just something that was bugging me when I was piecing together this timeline of why that call took place at that point. In any case, after that interview, they go get Hay's car, and shortly after that, around 5.45 in the morning, they go to Adnan's house and they arrest him. And of course, we've heard and we've already discussed how horrible that arrest was and the interrogation process during that day. So what does all this mean? It means I was wrong. This corruption, this conspiracy, goes far deeper than I thought it did. Deeper than I ever thought it could. 
I told you last week that I didn't believe that this was some grand conspiracy frame job on Adnan by the police, that it was simply a matter of them trying to get a clearance, trying to close the case, narrowing in on one suspect, and come hell or high water they were going to get their conviction. But it was more than that. It was so much more than that. This was a conspiracy. This was the targeting of an innocent man because he was Muslim. And what's the difference between a race to closing the case at all costs and a grand conspiracy? There's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. This was premeditated. It was the premeditated taking of an innocent life. Adnan Syed's. And Ritz and McGillivary deserve to be behind bars for this. Special thanks to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music who created all of the music for the show. Thank you, Tate, for creating our logo. And thank you to all of you listeners who continue to keep this movement alive by sending your thoughts and theories into theories at SerialDynasty.com. Until next week, this has been the Serial Dynasty.